0: Isaiah 61 gives us another opportunity to hear about our Messiah, Servant, Redeemer that Isaiah has been prophesying about in this final section. And we continue to see these layers and details that God is giving through Isaiah about the work that the Messiah will do when He comes. And we've also been analyzing, here's the kind of people that will belong to the Lord when He comes. And so again, we're going to get this opportunity, and uh, as I mentioned in the Wednesday night class, every chapter I go into comes the next favorite chapter, and here's now my next favorite chapter, because this chapter is fantastic, uh, of the descriptions that are given here concerning the Christ uh, and concerning what He is going to do for us. Let's read the first four verses of Isaiah 64 to introduce the text. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn Amazing beginning as Isaiah now declares, here is the task of the anointed. And again, now for the fifth time, we are seeing the Messiah, servant, redeemer, anointed one speak himself and say, here's the task that has been given to me. Here is the job that God has given me to do. And he describes it as then bringing the good news in the middle of verse one. The Lord has anointed me to bring the good news. I'm going to carry out this task and you will notice the the picture of who the good news is going to be proclaimed to. He says there in verse 1, the good news is going to go to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound in prison, and then verse 2, twice over in verse 2 and verse 3, to those who mourn. These are the ones who are going to receive this message. And so when the servant comes, he's going to give good news, but it's not going to be good news to everybody. It's going to be good news to the captives. It's going to be good news to the poor. It's going to be good news to the brokenhearted. It is going to be good news to those who mourn. And it's useful for us to step back for a moment and consider how Isaiah, especially in these last six or seven chapters, continues to use these physical images to describe a spiritual situation or a spiritual condition. We've seen that a few times, like back in Isaiah 55, remember, as he spoke of this great invitation of all those who would come to the waters and come and receive these things, he described the mountains would be singing and the trees would be clapping. And obviously, the mountains and the trees are not literally doing that. This is a spiritual picture of the joy that's going to happen as all these peoples are going to receive the invitation, accept the invitation, and come into Zion, come in to the kingdom of God. Chapter 59. Remember that there we see our sins thoroughly described in that chapter. And using a very vivid image that our sins are like snakes' eggs and spiders' webs. And everything we do is disaster it is poison, uh, it is evil, and those who come across us then continue in that evil. Again, it's not that we're really eggs or spiders or things like that, but describing the depths of the spiritual condition. Chapter 60, describe the wealth of the nations we're going to flow into Zion. And again, not saying that, okay, every king is going to saddle up all their gold and haul it into Jerusalem, but a spiritual image, again, of how the nations are going to flow into Zion, how all the peoples are going to be able to have access to come into the new kingdom of God that Christ would establish. And we should do the same thing in chapter 61. Then when it speaks here of that he's going to bring good news to the poor and the brokenhearted. and he's not talking about when the Messiah comes, he's going to deal with depression and poverty. That's not what this is visualizing. This is again the spiritual condition of the people. And using these images for spiritual realities. So as he says he's going to come to the poor and the broken hearted and the prisoners and the captive and the mourners. This is reflecting the spiritual condition of his people. This has been really the goal of Isaiah throughout this. Is trying to move the people to be sorrowful for their sins. Recognize your condition before God. This is why you will go into judgment, but I'm going to send my Redeemer, my servant, and my anointed one. He is going to save, but I need a change of heart. And so to those who are poor, who are brokenhearted, who are captive in their sins, who are prisoners in their sins, who mourn over their sins, he says there's going to be good news that's going to come to them. And so that is the hope that then the first two verses are are establishing is here is the anointed he is going to come and He is going to deal with our sins. He's going to set us free from our sinful condition, set us free from our sin captivity. He is going to have the solution that the people of, of Israel, that they needed in, in that day as Isaiah spoke to them, as well as us today, as Christ has already come. Now, the imagery that comes from this is, is, is also fairly fascinating because uh, the language particularly in the toward the end of verse 1 says to proclaim liberty or freedom, your translation may say, and that word is not used too often in the Scriptures. Most notably, this is the word that was used back in Leviticus chapter 25. It is the word that was used to describe the year of Jubilee when it was coming into, into play. The year of Jubilee would arrive... And it was going to cause quite a change of events for the people of Israel. Now, just a touch of background. Remember, the year of Jubilee was 50 years. You had to wait 50 years for this year of Jubilee to arrive. And then you would have an undoing of things that occurred that we're going to look at here in a moment. In verse 10 of Leviticus 25, it says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land and all its inhabitants. And so this seems to be the background of what this is talking about is in the year of Jubilee, you have the the proclaiming of liberty, the proclaiming of freedom of debts. This was when if you were in your debts and you had sold your property or sold your inheritance or sold your land to another to deal with your debts, you now had the ability to buy them back And these. Properties and these pieces of land would now return back to you, and so this is why this was the year of jubilee. It was a year also where there was not to be any uh, sowing for uh, crops. It was only to be a year of harvest, and that was all that could be done that year. And so you get a really interesting picture when you read all of Leviticus twenty-five, is that you see images of restoration and redemption that they'd be able to redeem their property, be able to redeem their land, and they'd be able to. Buy Buy them back. And it'd be a time of harvest. It'd be a time of joy as people would be set free from their debts and be able to now start over again before God. Now that becomes, I think, particularly fascinating because here is the same kind of language in Isaiah 61. And notice the word that's used or the phrase that's used in verse two, as this is described, that the proclamation will be the proclaiming of the year of the Lord's favor. It is going to be the year of the Lord's favor. Here is this jubilee concept that's coming to pass. This is going to be the fulfillment of why God had put that there in the law of Moses, that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a year of jubilee, a proclaiming of the Lord's favor, where there's going to be this time of harvest, of redemption, of restoration, of setting free of sins. And so this is the, the joyful picture that is bubbling up here as he speaks as a preaching this, this good news and proclaim liberty, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he continues. And then there's one other proclamation that is described there as well, is that not only will the prisoners be released and be brought out of the darkness and the prisoners will be set free from their sins and the captives will no longer be caught by sins and no longer remain in the darkness. But notice he also says in the middle of verse two. And the day of vengeance of our God proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of uh, of our God. And so there's going to be a time of vengeance. It is useful for us to consider that when we think of vengeance, we, we pretty well read that in extremely negative terms. You say vengeance, that's just really, really bad, right? Somebody's going to exact vengeance. You go, look out bad. That's not really the way that word was used, though, by Israel in that time frame. Remember, this is the proclamation of good news. And the idea of it is really a concept of justice. This is why it is vengeance, is that God is going to bring justice to the world. Those who are against him, that are his enemies, as well as the enemies of his people. And so you can see why if you are God's enemies, yes, this is a negative thing, this is the wrath of God coming against them. But to say this to God's people was not intended to them, for them to go, oh no, the day of vengeance, watch out. That was to be part of the good news. The good news is redemption. We're going to be set free from our debts and from our sins. We're going to be released from these things. And there's going to be a day of vengeance that God is going to deal with his enemies and his enemies are our enemies as Isaiah has described throughout this prophecy. And that's how we should see what verse 2 is dealing with. Notice how it's tied to proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. These are comforting words. This is good news to His people that God is going to deal with these things. He's going to deal with your enemies. He's going to reverse your situation. And now you will be set free from your sins. This then, I think, becomes particularly fascinating when we see what the servant is described doing. Notice it says there in verse 3, he's going to grant to those who mourn in Zion. So, to those who are the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, the mourners of sin, the spiritual condition, he's describing, verse 3, to grant to them who mourn in Zion. Here's what he's going to give them. He says, I'm going to give them A beautiful headdress or a beautiful crown is described here. Number two in verse three, I'm going to give him the oil of gladness and the garment of praise. So there's going to be this reversal. You are slaved in your sins. You are in the darkness. But when He comes, there will be the proclaiming of good news, the reversal of your fortunes, the redemption, harvest, restoration of your life. And here's what God is going to give to you. Rather than mourning, oils of praise, of joy, of rejoicing. No longer is there going to be sadness, but the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the faint spirit, a beautiful headdress or crown instead of the ashes. So, again, visualize all of this reversal imagery again. It's all going to change when the Christ comes. Now, think about how the New Testament uses this idea a lot. It uses this idea a lot that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be comfort. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be hope. There's going to be joy. There's going to be renewal. There's going to be restoration. You see that term used a lot like in the book of Acts and they're preaching to the people about what has happened now that Christ has come and the Holy Spirit has fallen on the apostles. Here's what this means. It is a time of restoration. It is a time of renewal. It is All of those same images Think about even how like the gospel of Luke Begins with that very kind of idea We read in like Luke Luke 2 verse 25 We read about Simeon It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel The consolation of Israel Well that's what Isaiah is talking about there's going to be comfort, consolation to the people. When the Messiah comes, it's going to reverse everything. We're told a little bit later in verse 38 that the prophetess Anna, she's waiting as well, says she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Same idea, same imagery. Redemption, renewal, restoration, joy, praise. When He comes, it's going to change everything. Remember, the Apostle Paul does the same thing. He uses this imagery quite a bit. We've seen it in the book of Romans in our study. He uses it very concisely in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, where he describes us as being rescued out of the dominion of darkness. Well, here's that same image that Isaiah 61 has. Here are the captives in their sin in the darkness now being set free and coming to the light. And so Christ will come and set you free. So this is what the good news is about. Set free From sins and it will be received by those Who mourn over their sins Who are devastated by their sinful condition They will be the ones who Now wear the beautiful crown They will be the ones who have the oils of gladness And the garments of praise They will now enjoy the fruit that's going to come When the servant arrives Consider The most famous sermon of Jesus The sermon on the mount And it kicks off with The mourners Blessed are the mourners. They'll be comforted. He's doing the exact same thing. He's resting on the concepts that what of Isaiah's prophesying is, here's now my people. And those who will be the ones who hear the good news are the poor in spirit, the mourners, as he goes through that list of all these people. Blessed are all these different people. Well, who are these people? It's the very people that Isaiah was talking about that they're going to hear the message of Christ and they are going to be overjoyed to see that now the consolation, redemption, restoration has come. With all of that in mind, please think about the weight of what happened then in that synagogue when Jesus was in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to pro- proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just stop for a minute and consider. He was given the scroll of Isaiah. We have seen an awful lot of texts talk about Jesus, right? I mean an awful lot of text and so he moves the scroll to this text and then after reading Isaiah 61 in the first uh, two verses he then rolls up verse 20 he rolls up the scroll he gave it back to the attendant sat down and all the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing The concept of jubilee, the concept of set free from your sins, the concept of redemption, renewal, restoration, the crown given to those who are mourning over their sin, the oil of gladness, the garments of praise. Here is Jesus as He walks into the synagogue and He says, that's now. I'm here. And all of those promises are now available to you. That had to be just a stopping moment in that synagogue to hear, He's arrived, He's come. The consolation of Israel has now come to take us and from our sins and to save us. From verse 3 of Isaiah, from the middle of verse 3, to verse 7, he's now going to talk about some of the results that come from this. Now that it's the year of the Lord's favor and Christ has come, he says, now here is what's going to happen. And I think it was just fascinating the images that he uses here. You will notice the first image is found in verse in verse 3 after saying, he's going to grant to those who mourn the the, the crown and the gladness and the praise, he says, that they may be called... Oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. Notice now the shift that happens. God is going to do all of this through His servants so that they, they who? They that mourn, they that are the captives, they that are the ones who are are mourning over their sins, they are the ones who are the poor, the brokenhearted, and in prison. He says, here's what I'm going to do. When they come, here's what I'm doing for them. I am going to make them or plant them as oaks of righteousness with an important purpose. Very end of verse 3. That He may be glorified. All of this, for the praise of God that this was happening, and so i 'm going to take these people who are steeped in their sins, who are deep in the darkness, who are captive by their own ways, and i 'm going to establish them and plant them as oaks, and that doesn 't just say well you 're just going to be a tree, but Righteousness is the picture Such that God will be glorified by that And so the image is that We are changed people then Who exist so that God can be glorified It is a beautiful picture of our identity We exist to show the glory of God But I want to take that a step further because I think the intention of Isaiah is deeper than that. He's not just saying, I'm going to have a people and they're going to glorify God. But this reversal is what glorifies God. These people were captive in their sins and now they are set free. And that transformation, that setting free, that proclamation of liberty is to the glory of God. That people will look and take and say you've taken people who are worthy of judgment, who are worthy of wrath, who should have eternal punishment given to them. And now you are planting them as oaks of righteousness. God gets all the glory for it. And that's the picture that is being given to us in verse three, a beautiful image. And then notice how verse four builds upon that. Notice they, these same people. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations. There is a work to be done. And this is becomes the exciting part of what this, this year of the Lord's favor accomplishes is that now these people are empowered and allowed to participate in the work of the kingdom. Isaiah does not picture... Here are my people, what will happen is they will come to the Lord begrudgingly, but they do so because they just don't want eternal punishment. And then out of their obligation and duty, they will do some things in working for God. You see the reversal that's being described here is that the point is not to say, "Okay, now notice that you have a job to do. So go out and build the ancient ruins and you need to be evangelistic and you need to be working in the kingdom of God. That's not the point of what Isaiah is saying. He's observing that it will be the privilege of these people who understand the gravity of their sin, who know that they are broken by what they have done and are captive in their sins, that they have heard the good news, they have been set free from their sins, and they consider it a joy and a privilege to be able to be a participant in the kingdom of God. And think about how often the New Testament writers use that kind of imagery where Peter would write in his first letter that you are able to be spiritual stones built up in this house that God has made this, this temple it's an amazing idea. Ephesians does the same thing, that we are being built on the apostles and prophets into this spiritual house and this temple that glorifies God. They're relating these images. It's not, oh, you know, we got to do something. I guess better teach my neighbor about, about the Lord. He's saying these people want it. They recognize their condition. They recognize where they were. They see that they were captives in their sins. And it is a privilege then. It is a joy, it is their hope, it is their amazement that they are able to belong to the kingdom of God. Think about how Jesus emphasized that in Luke 15 with that parable of that lost son. That parable is about the older son, but think about the mindset of that lost son when he says, you know, I'm just going to go back to my father and maybe I can just kind of be a servant and do some work. That's us, that's our mindset. We're deep in our sins and God has set us free and we should be like, boy, I hope that maybe he could just use me because I'm an awful wretched sinner and maybe he'll take me back. And the picture is the father goes, no, you're going to be a son. You're going to be in my kingdom. You are going to be in my house. It is a glorious thing that I'm going to do for you. I'm taking you from the depths of darkness and sin. And I'm not just saying, okay, now be my servant and do some menial tasks but you're a child of God. You are adopted into the family and you are counted as a fellow partaker in God's glorious kingdom. Isaiah says, here's what's going to happen they are going to see this as a privilege to work in God's glorious kingdom. They will be thrilled to find their part of how they can participate as fellow workers in God's kingdom. You know, I, was, I was thinking about that as I wrote this lesson. I remember as a kid, you know, one of the songs that we have was... a the, the one about the venue, to the work, to the work, we must all work for God. I remember it a good thing. That sounds just so dutiful. You, you know, know, it's like, oh, and it almost has that beat to it. To you know, the work, do the, it's almost like the seven dwarves. You know, we have to go to the mines, we do the work. We almost must work for God. That's a very joyful song now I understand. That's not okay. Yep, you're a Christian, to the work. We are singing this song to motivate everybody to get to work around here. uh uh-uh. uh Isaiah says... They're going to be oaks of righteousness. They're going to be the oils of gladness and praise they're going to be wearing. And they're going to joyfully do this. This is exactly what they want to do, and it will be so that God is glorified. They desire to build these things, that God has allowed them to do that. I hope you get the perspective that I think Isaiah wants us to have that we are allowed to work in the kingdom of God is a great privilege. It's not about, okay, now you've got to go do something. It's those who are truly God's people are glad that there is some part that they can do in the kingdom of God. The picture, picture continues in the New Testament when you think about how the Apostle Paul spoke of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and they will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. You see that kind of idea that Paul has as well as he speaks of Apollos and he speaks of himself and he just says, we're workers in the kingdom. Why are you arguing over who you following? This is about God. And we're just glad to be workers. We're just planting. We're just sowing. We're all doing our different parts. We're all using our different abilities and using our desires and and wants and service to God, fulfilling the kingdom that we can as our part, as God is the one who is blessing us as we do it. And so our work then is not a duty, but actually our work in the kingdom of God represents the year of the Lord's favor. It represents that we are allowed the privilege to be workers of righteousness in accomplishing the work of spreading the kingdom and working for God in that capacity. You'll notice this second image follows along with that in verses 5 and 5 through 7 he does another one verse 5 we've seen many times so far as he describes strangers shall stand and tend your flocks foreigners will be your plowmen and your vine dressers over and over again Isaiah has been saying the outsiders are coming in the foreigners are coming in he described the eunuchs are coming in all who have been excluded before are now coming in equally into this assembly of God this picture has been seen again and again and again but notice now the second image first we were now workers who We're building this up as oaks of righteousness. Verse 6, and you shall be called priests of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Another beautiful picture of what we are supposed to be. You will be priests of the Lord. You will have another important task that's given to you. And I think what is truly fascinating about this image is that this is truly the fulfillment of what God had desired Israel to be in the first place. I mean, go back to Exodus chapter 19, here they are. We're almost to Mount Sinai, right? Chapter 20 is Mount Sinai. And listen to what God says. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. But listen to this. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This was the view that God had as we function as priests, that they would be the light to the nations, that they would be taking the message out to the Gentile world. And as we recognize from Basically, after Exodus 20, things fall apart with that as they do not live up to what God had called them to do. But this was the vision that God had for His people, that this is what true Israel looked like, that they would be priests to the Lord. We see that imagery in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. What does that all mean? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who've called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. It is an image then for us that as we serve the Lord, as we are servants of Him, as we are oaks of righteousness, it demands that we are set apart from the world, not living like the world because we're priests of God. We're trying to show people the glory of God. We are trying to show people the message of Jesus Christ. We're trying to teach them the very words of God. That is our role as priests of God, as we take God to the people and draw people to Him. God has a response to this in verse 8. Verse eight For I the Lord love justice, I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, and then they that they are the offspring are the offspring the Lord has blessed. Lord's very quick simple response This is going to happen. He just says it through Isaiah. God is faithful and He is completely committed to bringing justice. And because of His love for justice, He is going to faithfully act. And so He will make this everlasting covenant, which He promised back in Isaiah 54, verse 10, Isaiah 55, verse 3, and Isaiah 59, verse 21. He brings it up again and He says there in verse 8, I will make them an everlasting covenant. And God says, I'm faithful to my word. I keep my word. There will be justice. There will be recompense. I will do this. There is no deterring of God in this plan. Which leads then to the final two verses of this text, which is then the people's response. Listen to verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. What an amazing finale to this call of the year of the Lord's favor. Where God says, I will be faithful to my covenant. I will give you an everlasting covenant. I will bring justice. I will accomplish these things. I will send my servant who will proclaim the good news. And he will set the captives free. There will be liberty to those oppressed by their sins. And now we we see this great picture. What will the people do? Here is Isaiah proclaiming it. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. I continue to be fascinated by Isaiah's prophecy that you will notice over and over again. He says there's going to be salvation and righteousness and you're going to be made beautiful. In fact, you're going to be joyful in the Lord because of what God has done. Again and again, he says, God is going to accomplish something and it's going to cause a change in your life. It's going to bring joy that you will joyfully worship God. You will joyfully serve God. Over and over again, Isaiah just keeps hammering and driving at this. This is what my people look like. They are the ones who exult in God. They are the ones who greatly rejoice in God. And why are they so overwhelmed with joy? Verse 10, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Earlier we saw in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 17, as well as in verse 20, where he described that He is covering our sins with His salvation and with His righteousness. And here again, the imagery appears one more time telling us that God's people will love Him will hope in him, will serve him, will desire him and live for him because of the proclamation of this good news. That they have been set free from their sins and this is what motivates their response. I hope that we will... Always consider what Isaiah is saying about this, that when we think of our obedience, we think of service, and we think of worship, when we think of all that God has asked us to do or sacrificed for, for Him, that it never comes out of any kind of feeling of obligation, but always a reminder of look at what God did. Look at what He brought you out of. He has taken people who were captured by sins and are now planted as oaks of righteousness. People who are set free from their sinful ways so that they can work for God in His kingdom as His priests. And He calls for His people to joyfully serve Him, to see what God has done for them, and to live for Him as priests, ministers, and oaks of righteousness that rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the former devastations, people who are working in the kingdom of God in service to Him. How amazing I think it would have been to have been there at that moment when those people heard the words that it is today that this message has been fulfilled. The message of Isaiah, the hope for the world, the consolation of Israel, the comfort to people who are sick and tired of sin and worn out because they continue to do what is wrong and unrighteous. And now there is good news to them. There is a way of hope. There is a way of escape. And there is a means of grace. We invite you to come to His grace tonight. We invite you to turn away from your sins and see the glorious God Who has made this possible through his servant, redeemer, uh, anointed one, his glorious king, Jesus Christ. He's proclaimed the good news to us today. That we can be set free from our sins if we will love him with all of our heart. If we will be crushed by our sins. And recognize that Jesus is, is the solution to our sins. To give our lives completely to him joyfully. For all that He has done for us to take people who were broken and disgusting in their sins. And He says, here's what I've done. I've made you beautiful, clothed you with garments of righteousness and salvation. I've saved you from your sins. Will you give your life to me? I hope you'll do that tonight. Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?